power on. This episode of Sovereign Tech is dedicated to Kenny Rogers. You picked a fine time to leave us. Accessing Historical Database Year 2020 The tech giants become aware of the greatest threat to their corporatist domination. An obscure science and tech podcast becomes a major factor in a peaceful open source revolt against the military Silicon Valley industrial complex. The podcast, Sovereign Tech Its host, Dr. Brian Sovereign The tech giants try to stop Sovereign Tech. They can't. Woo! Wait, what? Too much coffee? Is there such a thing as drinking too much coffee? Yeah, no. <laughs> Too much coffee, me, the golden stallion, the man of tomorrow, Savzu, the rated R radio star, of course, here for you for some sovereign tech. And, uh, well, you better believe it. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm to the point where it's just like, yeah, fuck it. Mainline this shit, you know, <laughs> just, just tap the, give me right on the vein there, baby. Good thing. I got some, uh, some well, fairly, uh, standout veins here. Anyway, <laughs> we're not here to talk about that. We are here to talk about everything COVID-19. Okay. No, not, not really. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> And no, Kenny Rogers, as far as I know, did not die from COVID-19, uh, though. Well, anyway, <laughs> like I said, maybe not a bad time to not be here. Uh, what a world we are living in. No doubt about it. Uh, oh, man. A lot to get into in this episode of Sovereign Tech. You may have noticed that this episode's uh, coming out pretty quick, pretty hot on the heels of the last episode. Well, that's because a lot of it is going to be uh, or will comprise of subjects that I, I wanted to get into in the last episode. But then also, um, you know, there's this there's this concept of, uh, of content debt, as it were. And so, you know, you're due a couple extra episodes here. And so I want to make sure you are getting them. And we again, we have plenty to get into uh, with this episode. In fact, following it right up. I mean, what? Let's hell, let's make it hot, uh, you know, especially if you're playing Doom 64. Woo. Oh, man. Now, I'm not playing Doom Eternal yet. I'll get there when it comes out for the switch. Uh, I'm going to guess that'll be in the fall, may probably even December, but I'll be there when it happens. Better believe it. But doom 64 that came out on the 20th all over it, baby. I mean, oh, fuck, such great shit. Anyway, it just shows how other than other entries in the doom series, how, how, how very few uh, great games actually get made anymore. Regardless of that, uh, following up, like I said, right on the heels of what we were discussing, actually, in the last episode's foreplay, let's just do it. Um, we talked about how Chrome OS was uh, basically is on an indeterminate delay, you know, as far as development goes. 
in fact, as I understand it, they are now basically skipping right to version 83. I don't understand why, you know, okay, well, version 82 will come out when it comes out is it because I mean, so much like Ubuntu, you know, a, a serious operating system for people to jump on. I mean, you know, the reason I'm talking about Chrome OS is partly because, uh, all right, all right, let me finish my point. Then I want to get into a subject here on that because I already got some response from, uh, from listeners and I understand where they're coming from to the episode that just came out where we also talked about, uh, Chromebooks and how, because of COVID-19 and people working from home that, uh, that, that, that Google has basically put Chrome OS development on hold. So Chrome OS like Ubuntu, uh, operates on, I think it's like a six week cycle, not a six month cycle like Ubuntu does. Um, but very like, like they have timed releases. So, you know, when the net more or less other, unless, you know, there's a worldwide pandemic going on, you know, when the next version of Chrome OS is going to come out. Right. Um, so maybe that's just like, they've done some kind of math in that release schedule. And so if they changed the numbering in any way, it would just fuck up the release schedule, you know, or whatever they had in mind for the next 20 years. Who knows? I don't know. Uh, so that's probably why they're actually skipping to Chrome 83. I'm going to guess that that's, uh, that's the reason, you know, but a couple points on this one. Okay. Number one. Google has got to be shitting themselves over dropping. I mean, there, you still have meet and you still have duo and you still have Google hangouts, but man, if they got to be shitting themselves over like, like canceling hangouts and Allo, I mean, right now, you know, conferencing software is basically, you know, who's, who could be the champion of this is up for grabs. Now grant you. Okay. I mean, right now, zoom, like their stock is going through the roof. Uh, look folks, if you are, and, and, you know, I, I talked about this in the last episode of sovereign tech, how on sovereign tech. Now we have different threat levels, right? Threat level one is your average run of the mill, you know, cracker slash hacker. Who's trying to get your shit at the coffee shop. Uh, then you have threat level two, which is the enterprise space business, right? Corporate espionage, these sorts of things. Threat level three is, um, you know, is, is nation state actors. Okay. And then, you know, who as, as far as being a, um, a bad actor and an attacker on your system and then threat level four. Well, we don't talk about that. <laughs> Not of this earth. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, you know, I mean, so zoom really, I, I would say even on a threat level two, uh, doesn't pass muster. Now, I mean, they, they implemented end to end encryption, uh, a little while back, which was a nice move, partly because there were privacy concerns, like where they were turning, they were able to turn on, they were able to bypass the security settings of browsers to where they could turn on your, um, you know, your camera, uh, remotely. And I mean, that's about as bad as it gets, right? All privacy fails once you have a camera pointing somewhere, right? So that was bad. And I think that's part of why they did that. But they still track. I mean, zoom is still really a privacy nightmare in a million ways. I mean, certainly at a threat level, threat level two, because zoom has access to who knows how much data. And I don't necessarily trust their end to end encryption so much or that scheme. Um, and then you have, well, threat level three is where, so, all right, part of what, part of what zoom can track 
is that if your attention, if you don't have the zoom window as like the, the top focus on your, you know, on your desktop for longer than 30 seconds, they know that like they're aware because they, they, they know this is getting used to keep attention. And it's ironic because a lot of these features were getting baked in, uh, over the past few years. And especially lately, there's been a ramping up on it before COVID-19, but now with COVID-19 and a lot of people, uh, you know, students, uh, taking classes from home, um, or, you know, business people having to work from home, which is why zoom stock is going through the roof right now. Uh, the ability for zoom to tell your professor, teacher, manager, whatever, if you're paying attention or not, and to be able to give that metric, uh, well, I mean, that's, you know, that's a pretty hot commodity to know. Right. Um, but there, there's other things too. Like they, they track, they know basically more or less like what software is open. I mean, it, it's a nasty piece of kit. If you have, okay. If you have a, like a specific laptop or something like I do this, uh, you know, maybe you have like the, the, the privacy beast, right? That's the name of an actual laptop link is in the show notes for it, folks. You should get one. Um, if you have, you know, if you have any laptop that you consider to be secure and where you do whatever, you know, dirty deeds done dirt cheap that you do. I hope you never, even in the browser that you never fucking run zoom. Okay. And actually I think, I think zoom on just about any platform requires you to install some bit of software, even if it's just electron, um, man, I, you know, I wish there's gotta, there's gotta be an easy way to do this, to put in a flag or something on an OS where you can basically turn off, you know, any app that's using electron and just not allow it to run. I would totally set that up. I mean, BSD would already have that implemented. I'd bet, but I would, I, and what I know what you're going to say. Well, shit, stallion, we wouldn't be able to run signal on our desktop. Well, isn't that a concern? (laughs) I mean, uh, yeah. Anyway, I, my course, me raising concerns around electron and it's not just like necessarily security concerns. Even there's other problems. Uh, I've mentioned those many times over the years and even in recent months. So, you know, go back and listen to the catalog if you want to check in on those. But regardless of that, I really wish that, I mean, that, that'd be so awesome to have that feature set where you could say, yeah, no electron apps get to run on this. And I mean, then it'd be amazing to see how much software actually fucking works uh, today. But regardless, let's move on. Um, so yeah, Zoom. Um I mean, I get it. You're probably, you probably have to use it. In fact, in the Sovereign Tech Telegram group, um, I had a request to do a, a special on work from home software. Um, I, I know there's plenty of uh, quote unquote news outlets, put that in quotes, uh, quote unquote news outlets online that are covering that right now. It's clearly a hot topic. Um, I'm open to discussing that and doing it based upon different threat levels, like doing basically like different lists based upon the threat level of what you're trying to protect from. Uh, There are alternatives to zoom out there. Uh, Good luck getting. I mean, the thing is, is that especially since zoom integrates with everything so well and technically or not so technically, but supposedly just runs in the browser. Okay. Uh, Like every, everybody just, just jumps on it you know, because it's not complex to set up or anything. And and it really isn't. And it's very, it admittedly, it is very feature rich. Um, but that, but understand that zoom is, this is not daps. This is, you know, a privacy nightmare, uh, across the board. But anyway, 
Um, we can move on from talking about that. So Chrome OS 83, that'll happen. Oh, that's the second point that I was going to bring up. That's right. So in the last episode, was that episode two or 366? <laughs> 266. Woo. Those were the days. No. <laughs> episode 366. We're in episode 367. Um, in episode 366, I brought up, I, I, I know, and I remember making, because I just made it yesterday. I remember making the statement that I wish phone, you know, Android phones wouldn't be Android phones anymore, but that they basically be Chrome OS phones. Now, I think this is something that's coming. And then actually a lot of people have predicted this for a few years now. Okay. Um, and I got a lot of heat from that, you know, and, and look, I get that you want a nice open source, okay. Operating system and that you can choose to install whatever apps and, and all this. Look, understand that stock Android, I don't mean AOSP. Okay. Which stock Android is based off of. Those are two different things. The Android operating or the, the Android open source project. Okay. Yes. is still largely maintained by Google, just like Chromium is in Chromium OS, not Chrome OS, Chromium OS. Okay. Um, AOSP is one thing. All right. And you can run that and you can run something based off of that replicant lineage OS, um, fuck, I, I, I forget the name of the one that only runs like on, on higher end pixels, uh, that that's very, uh, privacy focused anyway, go graphene, there's graphene and there's other ones too. Okay. You can run those all day long and pop F droid on them or the, even, well, I mean, this would defeat the purpose of privacy, right? But you could even put the Amazon app store on them, whatever, have a great time. You don't want to deal with Google. I understand. Okay. If you are running stock Android though, not AOSP or something based off of it, but stock Android. There is so much Google shit, all right, on that. It might as well be Chrome OS right now. Okay, in fact, we talked about this when uh, when Google released Android Go, which hasn't really been taking off as I understand it, but regardless, they've been shooting for that for a good couple of years now, and we reviewed it on the show, um, including it was on Nokia 2, I think, that we reviewed it. And one of the things that shocked just about everybody, but because Android is already very, I mean, a lot of it is very close source. Everybody's asking, so we didn't with Android go, which is meant to run on lighter hardware. Okay. So your stock version of Android, again, not AOSP, your stock version of Android that comes on, say a pixel or something, or, or an Android one phone runs around seven to nine gig. Okay. Now an Android go phone is meant to run on something like eight gig that has eight gigs on board of storage. And that's all. So it tries to run at about half that right. Three to four gigs, something along those lines. Everybody's asking. So wait, because nobody could see where Android go or where, where stock Android, I'm trying to say this Android go could basically do everything that stock Android could do. There was no real uh, perceived difference in function. So the question became, what the fuck is that other four gig, four or five gigs of, of OS doing on, on stock Android phones that Android goes not doing. It didn't make any sense to people. Is that, is it literally five gigs of just looking pretty? Oh, I don't think so, but you couldn't tell because there's a lot, a lot of that, you know, the, a lot of that parts of the operating system were closed down. So now, I mean, some people want to get into, and, and I, this is something I'm still looking into because I heard about this recently and I wasn't exactly aware that this, 
this was happening at such a degree that I've heard the claim. The claim that I've heard is that Android collects every, like, like if you are offline with Android, like in airplane mode, okay, for example, you know, there's no Bluetooth, no Wi-Fi, no, you know, no LTE, nothing. It collects all of the metrics that it can from the varying sensors that are more or less still operating, right? Cause like your accelerometer still operates. You're still using apps on there if they have offline functionality and so on. It collects all of that. And then as soon as it gets an internet connection of some kind, Android sends all of that information, all of the, all of that metadata, basically all of that metadata to Google. I'm, I'm still looking into this. I, I, I don't have, I mean, I believe it or I can believe it. I should say, I don't want to necessarily believe it, but I, I, you know, I imagine that this is possible. Um, this is something I'm still looking into and we'll talk about on sovereign tech in the future. If I get to like a, uh, an answer that, that sounds satisfactory either way. Um, like really satisfactory. Cause I, I mean, even if I'm sure to some degree, this has to be happening. Okay. Um, in fact, like, it's just, scary the amount of metadata that your your phone collects but the idea that like there has to be a a limit to how much it can continually soar and so i just i want to know the details of this before you know i sound any kind of alarm on it and be a great entry into dark android 2020 um but regardless that that that's that's something on my radar um but I say all of this to suggest that all of this points at the idea that what would be the difference? There really wouldn't be a difference between Google's stock Android, not AOSP, Google's stock Android and Chrome OS running on a smartphone. The only difference would be is that Chrome OS is actually a far more secure platform, especially out of the box. And even going onward, I, I would say now it's not more private, but then Google's, you know, stock Android, I wouldn't even really call private. I mean, you could take it there, but you've got to go through a lot of steps, which I, of course, applaud and suggest. But you get where I'm going with this. So, you know, everybody clamoring and complaining, saying, I can't believe, you know, and first you're saying that Windows 10 people, uh, you're, you know, people that are using Windows 10 right now should jump to Chrome, to Chrome OS. Now you're saying Android users should jump to Chrome OS. Is everybody supposed to be on Chrome OS? No. No, 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 no. I would love to live in a world where everybody's, you know, again, rocking some brand of Linux or BSD. Okay. And the, you know, and that smartphones don't even fucking exist. Don't confuse me. Okay. But you know, on a, on the conversation, and this is why I came up with these different threat levels. So you can know at what level I'm talking about on a conversation of threat level one and threat level two. Uh, I mean, it's still best if you use the stuff that might work at threat level three, right. Against nation states. But most people in my experience in what little information I have bothered to collect, uh, anonymously, of course, about my listenership and about people in general, they just don't care about threat level three, or they're just not willing to go to toe. Like they, 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 they're not, they're not going to do it. So fine. I am telling you at the very least something that will secure, you know, the bulk of us from, you know, things like Mirai botnet and, and all that stuff. And we'll, you know, we'll go down that road. Okay. But that doesn't mean we won't stop talking about threat level three or even threat level four. But yeah, I, I just, I, I understand where the bulk of my audience is coming from. Okay. Where we're a lot, not the bulk, but where 
a lot of aspects of my audience is coming from. And I certainly try to talk to a lot of different demographics on the show. And I know that a lot of different demographics listen to the show, even people who aren't tech savvy at all. I guess, I guess you're just entertained uh, by, by the, the lavish mouth noises coming out of my mouth. So (laughs) Um, anyway, so enough of that. Uh, but that, that's, that's where I'm coming from. And I hope I, I explained, you know, why I didn't, you know, bother or why, you know, why I even said that. Um, also, I mean, I think Chrome OS is far more stable than, than Android, uh, historically is. Um, so moving on from that, you know, something actually, I'm going to bring this up quick because I was, this was such a pleasant surprise. Uh, I was watching eight bit guy on uh, he has a very popular YouTube channel. Um, by the way, something I've noticed. Okay. So I was watching another YouTube video as well by, it was Peter Wilhelm. He did this great video, uh, about the mask of Zorro, one of my favorite movies of all time. And in fact, the, the, the number one sovereign tech fan in history, um, may he rest in peace, Chris Pasquini. It was also one of his favorite films. We really connected uh, on that in a million other ways, but certainly on that. Uh, and he did a great video where he explained, he's like, how do you people not realize how great this movie is? And I felt so vindicated because I've gotten so much shit for saying that that movie's amazing for, well, ever since it came out uh, in the nineties. But anyway, he did this great video, but he's actually spirit or he's part of a group trying to create alternatives to YouTube which I am, I'm so happy to hear that because he's certainly somebody that has a lot of stroke on YouTube. Uh, and, and I think more and more YouTube stars as more disasters happen. And I don't just mean like real world disasters that are like affecting everybody, something like COVID-19, right? Even the disasters with, uh, like the, the marketing to children. We talked about that in recent, uh, recent episodes of sovereign tech. Um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, even, even the channel creators are finally starting to say, you know, it's just a matter of time before we say something that YouTube is basically going to ban. And in fact, the video by eight bit guy. So I'm just bringing that up that that's happening. And I'm glad that that's happening. Uh, the video by eight bit guy, there are multiple times in the episode that I just watched, which was about the Philips CDI where he brings, where he says, you know, I'd play more of this for you. Like, cause he's demoing off VCDs, music CDs and what they do. He can't play the movie though, or barely can play the movie right in his video. And he can't play the music because basically YouTube's algorithm will hit him with a copyright takedown and, you know, a DCMA or, or DMCA, sorry. And, uh, and you know, he's, he's done. Right. And, and it's just, it's funny to hear him mention it so many times. And again, I think that this is really speaking to that you know, Google has this quote unquote amazing thing. And I put that in quotes, amazing thing with YouTube. Um, but YouTube creators are getting stifled partly because of copyright law, but then also because of algorithms that are basically censoring. And it all comes down to censorship that are basically censoring what they can even talk about. Uh, it, it, it's really insane. But anyway, I was watching the video by eight bit guy. I, I like his style. He's really like, he's, he's, he's very much the antithesis to me. He's very nice you know, and, and very, very calm. And <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm actually rather, rather envious uh, of, of his ability to do that. Kind of like the gaming historian. I'm a big fan of him as well. Um, but anyway, he was doing it about the Philips CDI and he brought up something that 
I had no, I, I know much about the Philips CDI. I've even played games on them, uh, burn cycle and so on. I mean, like I, I've played these things, but they had a capability that I had no idea that wasn't even directly for the Philips CDI. It was something that was part of the CD, the compact disc spec that I had no idea. And he even admits in the video, he says 90% of the people he talked to had no idea that this was even a thing. Basically CDs in the nineties, some of them and not all of them were even labeled. Some of them can do this even if they're not labeled. And it almost makes me want to have a Philips CDI just to check this out. I mean, unfortunately though, I don't, I don't really have CDs, but it's such a cool thing. Um, and I put a link in the show notes where you can actually check this shit out because it's, it's pretty, pretty incredible. Um, it's, it's called, so you, you had a bunch of different specs within the compact disc format, right? Which was originally created, you know, at Rome labs and in, in the eighties, uh, whoever was, was Sony and Phillips were behind it regardless. Um, but so in 89, they started doing this in 1989 where there, you could put graphical data on the CD, you know, burn it with the music. And so what would happen is that you, you'd pop in, for example, in the, uh, in eight bit guys video, he puts in an album by uh, Fleetwood Mac. Now this one's not labeled because what it would do is it would say the compact disc, you know, logo that says digital audio. And then under it, it would normally say graphics. And so if you took that and if you put that into a CDI, and I'm sure there are other compatible players that would somehow allow for this on your TV screen, it would actually like put the lyrics on the screen. It would do like these, like this, this photo show, like these little graphics and everything. I mean, you know, they're very, very basic graphics. Again, I put a link in the show notes for this episode where you can go to YouTube and you can actually see some of these, how they're made, but some of them are like mini music videos. I mean, they're really, really brilliant, uh, very unique art. And I just, I, I never had any idea. And now I'm kind of, uh, I almost wish I had CDs still because I would love to look at them and see which one of them actually say graphics on it. Uh, I mean, there's some great stuff here from uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash, of course, uh, you know, Lou Reed, Donna Summer. I mean, you know, I, I could dig all of that. Uh, even Honeymoon Suite, huge fan. Me, Stallion, huge fan of Honeymoon Suite. Uh, I, I would love, love to see, you know, what the, what they did with it. I mean, well, you can, you can watch it here. But it would be so cool to like see it in action, you know, first person. Um, I was really, really impressed by that. And I just, I, I never knew that this, that this was a thing. And, and I, I got to admit, I really see this is, you know, I, I, I said that, uh, you know, in my dream world, there wouldn't even be smartphones. These kinds of ideas, right, where you basically force formats to do all these really unique things to just get as much mileage out of a format as you can or a technology as you can, you know, these kinds of crazy ideas like CD graphics, you know, I mean, and, and of course he talked about VCDs, which I'm actually a huge fan of those. Um, in fact, when I first started burning DVDs, what I originally did to save an ass ton of money, um, <laughs> is I converted them, you know, I'd use, uh, well, now it's called Red Fox, but it used to be called Sly Fox. Uh, I'd use Sly Fox or Red Fox. And then you had Clone DVD, which was one of their pieces of software. And I'd use that. Uh, and I would burn them to where they could fit onto a VCD because it would, it would go through that process. I mean, 
you know, it, it would certainly cut down the quality significantly. In fact, I mean, arguably VCDs had worse quality than VHS, but CDs cost practically nothing at the time. You know, we're talking in the later aughts. Uh, so I, I thought it was a great way to have a, you know, shit ton of movies, <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, VCDs were really cool, but I mean, you know, how, how far they tried to push, uh, the CD. And I feel like with, with smartphones and in some ways, even laptops, like we've stopped coming up with really novel and just fun, brilliant technologies that exist outside of these platforms. And, and I, you know, I really miss that and I get it. Like the CDI was trying to be like your all in one home entertainment system. Right. But I, just like I, over, over the years, I've lamented about, uh, you know, the, the iPod classic, right. And how we've really lost, uh, a great, uh, user interface with, you know, with, with the click wheel. Like, like we're missing something right now. I think that would actually be really beneficial and could be a lot more efficient and quicker than a touchscreen really, you know, and, and, and actually more also more anti-fragile. Um, I think because when you have physical buttons, of course, you know, I, I have said for many, many times and uh, for years on this show, uh, that the, <laughs> the, the world is perishing from a lack of hardware switches, uh, and really now it's to the point of like, we, we just can, can we have tactile buttons of some kind, please. Even a click wheel would be nice, but regardless, that's not nostalgia speaking folks. I could talk to you from an engineering perspective on why these are good ideas and great ideas and why we haven't taken them, taken them to their limits. If there are any limits, taking them to their limits to where, you know, we could really come up with something pretty amazing and genuinely beneficial. Right. Um, as to where, you know, touchscreens are, have basically become how well can they play fruit ninja? But, Anyway, yeah, CD compact disc graphics on music CDs. What a brilliant little idea. I mean, they are so wild and I would have loved to have seen where, where this could have gone and nobody ever, I mean, I used to go to music stores all the time. You know, the people behind the counter never talked about it. I don't think I ever saw a single advertisement for it. Like how, how did this not get touted? How did this not get pushed? Was it another, I, I mean, like I know VCD, right? Like VCD was huge in of course, Southeast Asia and VCD was actually a really big deal in the Middle East. In fact, when, um, I mean, and this is when DVD had already really taken over the world, thanks to the PlayStation two. Um, I remember when I was overseas, uh, in, in just about every country in the Middle East that I went to, uh, you could still find when you'd go into the little shops and everything, they would be selling VCDs, all kinds of movies, Terminator two. I mean, all, all kinds of shit. Um, you know, I mean, and that was, that would have been in like Oh three and Oh four well past the VCDs day. You know, again, the DVD had really already taken over at that point. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they're still around. I really wouldn't. Um, that was a hell of a thing. So yeah, I mean, VCDs, were a big deal in other parts of the world. I know they tried to get sold in the early late nine or late eighties, early nineties. Like I, I can remember seeing them being sold at uh, electronics boutique in the mall when I was a, a little kid. Um, so those got promoted, but h- how CD or, you know, compact discs uh, with graphical abilities, again, music CDs with graphics, how those never got, got pushed. I, I, I really don't know. 
Um, and I know that, you know, eventually to try and keep the CD relevant, they would, uh, you know, they combine a CD with a DVD that would have either DVD audio, which DVD a, and of course it's not, <laughs> that's not double vaginal, double anal. <laughs> it means DVD audio. <laughs> Ellen just looked over at me. She's like, wait, what? <laughs> Relax my love. <laughs> But a DVD, a, they were trying to make that a thing. But basically with that, you know, on the DVD, they would put a concert along with the CD and maybe a concert that was relevant to it, or they put music videos, whatever else. Um, so I know they would try to do that sort of thing to get you to buy the CD. And maybe they just thought the the graphics option on CDs was just far too basic to, to matter. I, I don't know, but I was really intrigued by that. Just a nice little piece of tech history there to kind of slide in on, on, on the foreplay here. Um, you know, and not slide in like DVD a either. Cause you're gonna need a lot of lube for that. No. Nope. Wow. All right. <laughs> <Let's>, <laughs> all right. Okay. Uh, last bit for the foreplay. And then we're going to get into our story of the week. And we have a very interesting hack sec or very disturbing, I should say, uh, hack sec to get into, but, uh, let's go for, yeah. What's our last bit here. I actually have a link, I have a story here, uh, that's in the show notes that we can look up for about the, uh, for the foreplay. What's this from the street. Federal Reserve unveils unlimited QE. Of course, I think that stands for quantitative easing amid all an effort to confront, confront severe coronavirus disruptions. What the fuck? The Fed will buy unlimited amounts of treasury bonds and purchase corporate and municipal debt for the first time in a historic effort to defend the U.S. economy from severe coronavirus disruptions. What does that sound like? You know what that really sounds That kind of sounds like... sovereign out of here my not so fellow americans this is brian soviet welcoming you to the communist party as the federal reserve is printing unlimited money and purchasing all debt consolidating all private enterprise and the government into meaninglessness your capitalist system has finally failed under the threat of covid19 Sovereign. Mm, I see Brian Sovereign still has a penchant for remarkably beautiful women. I'll be talking with you later, Ellen. Now, as I was saying, communist comrades, I mean, Americans, I would like to... 
Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, sorry. Um, oh, that was a bad one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Brian Sovereign here with you. Uh, <laughs> you got to have fun these days. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, folks, look, <laughs> unlimited quantitative easing. We really are all communists now. <laughs> this is so bad. It's all it took. You know, I link is in the show notes if you want to read more, but I know a lot of my listeners are of the libertarian persuasion and you've probably already all heard about this. And I'm sure all of your, you know, economists, uh, whoever these, uh, you know, tea leaf readers are, uh, are coming out and saying, Oh, look at this is ridiculous. Blah, blah, blah. And yes, quantitative easing is ridiculous every time you get into it. That's why we buy Bitcoin. Woo. But we already knew, uh, that the treasury department or well, you know, president, uh, chump slap nuts in chief, was basically saying that he wanted to send out at least initially, I think it was going to be one $1,000 check. Then there was some talk of including it only in like uh, in, in, in a tax break or tax refund. Uh, but then it turned into where, okay, no. And, and I don't even know how to pronounce the asshats name Munchkin or something Munchkin. I'll call him Munchkin, uh, you know, said actually, well, we're probably going to do three, $1,000 checks. And if the COVID-19 situation, uh, economic situation continues, then we will base Then it sounded like basically once a month, they're just going to keep printing out thousand dollar checks for every single communist. I mean, American, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, they already stole the money from you or they already stole what you've earned represented by the greenback. And of course the greenback really does mean nothing. You know, I mean, it, it hasn't meant anything in a long time, but it sure as fuck doesn't mean anything now. I, I, this, I can't help. And, and I even, I said this in the sovereign tech telegram group, which by the way, if you want to join that great conversations happening, there lots of fun and lots of serious stuff. Lots of, I mean, just some of those brilliant people you'll ever meet are hanging out in there. Um, you know, I said like, look, Hey, I'm fielding all theories that now, like I said, in the last episode of sovereign tech, there are, and this is key. There are multiple forces and forces is a broad term on purpose. There are multiple forces taking advantage of the COVID-19 situation, multiple. There is not just one thing behind it. It is not the new world order. Where's Hogan? It's not the new world order. Okay. It's not, you know, whatever one thing you think it is, you're, you're not wrong, but you're wrong. Okay. It might be the thing you're thinking of, but then it's also 20 others at least. Okay. That are taking advantage of this for different reasons and in different ways. It is not some puppeteering from on high. That's, I mean, that might be occurring to some degree, but that's to some degree, there's plenty of, uh, uh, you know, people in different ponds that are bigger fish that are also taking advantage of this. And I, a part of me very much wonders if this is, I mean, if some aspects, again, multiple forces, some aspects of, shall we say authoritarianism, because that has a lot of different brands, um, are using this to, to, to maybe ease, not quantitative ease, but it is quantitative easing, but to ease people into the notion of UBI, right? Of universal basic income. 
Uh, Facebook, apparent, I, I think I saw a report that Facebook was, is already doing this where they are giving their employees an extra thousand dollars, uh, each, you know, each month as this kind of goes on or whatever. Um, and I mean, not unironically, I had actually said, I mean, this, this is to some degree, this is sovereign tech uh, predictions coming true because I had said a couple of years ago and I wasn't, I know I wasn't the only one, but we were all kind of independently coming up with this myself and other journalists that it really felt like Mark Zuckerberg was running for some kind of office, maybe even the president of the United States in 2020. Now he got a pretty ugly smear job throughout 2018 and 2019 to the point that, okay, it's, it's pretty clear, you know, he's not going to run for, for office or presidency in 2020, but he got past that smear job or he's more or less past that smear job and Instagram rolls on. So what good did it really do? Uh, you know, he could run for office in the future, but I had said one of his platforms is going to be UBI and he's basically already implementing that after a fashion in Facebook as a company itself, right? It's an abstract notion of it, but it's there. And now again, please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that this is what's behind COVID-19. Like I said, multiple forces, multiple reasons, multiple ways that this is being taken advantage of. And I would not be surprised if there are people who are wanting to test this out. How do you even distribute a thousand dollar check to every single communist in the USA? I mean, every American in the USA. And I guess we're going to find out, you know, we'll see how this works, but, uh, or how this ends up shaping up or how it goes. And we'll keep, uh, you know, certainly be keeping track of that to some degree here. I mean, you could say that this is a tech show, but ironically, if I believed in this sort of thing and I don't, uh, I have well been on record against UBI every single time the conversations come up. Um, I mean, I, I don't know how many times I have to talk about it for people to realize. Cause I, you know, I mean, I get labeled all kinds of shit. Hell, I get labeled a communist and I'm like, wait, 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 what? You know, <laughs> just because I actually believe in people having choice and freedom to, you know, express themselves in any way that they want, as long as they don't harm other people. Uh, somehow I get labeled as all kinds of crazy things, but anyway, I'm sure as fuck not supportive of UBI. Um, but ironically, if I were, the way to do it would be a cryptocurrency, right? Like that, that's just the easiest way it, you set up a website, right? I mean, you got 700 people, 1700 people working on that, that ridiculous Google COVID-19 website, which we talked about in the last episode. Uh, you know, they could easily set up a site where, you know, people go there, they put in their ID number. Of course, I think identity is for cattle, but again, you know, we're, we're playing a little bit of uh, devil's advocates uh, here, emphasis on the devil. Uh, no, I love Satan, but we're waiting shouldn't say that. I mean, I, all right. Anyway, I did. So you'd go to the website, right? You'd put in your ID number, whatever that happens to, uh, to be. And you know, whatever that looks like, whether it's, it was given to you by ice or some other, uh, organization and you put in, your, you put in your ID number and then you put in, uh, you know, a, a, a cryptocurrency address of some type. And that would be, I mean, you know, that cost, practically nothing by comparison to what it costs to, you know, arrange all these checks and all this other stuff by comparison. In fact, I still think this is one, this was one of the big pushes behind the Lira 
And the reason that so many companies started backing out of being part of what was it the Lira Alliance or whatever the Lira was Facebook's quote unquote cryptocurrency quote unquote because it doesn't really live up to being a cryptocurrency, but it's their digital token. How about that? Uh, was because they realized, oh shit, Zuck's actually not going to get into office this year or in the, in you know the coming election, and so this isn't going to be the you know the main way that money gets transmitted and or you know how people would have purchasing power if he implemented some kind of UBI. Uh, I I mean I really I that part I really believe that that's why they were they were backing out. It was I mean ultimately came down to political pressures, but. Regardless, I think that that's what was going on there. And I think the Lira was being developed just for that purpose was so that there was a unified currency that easily got sent to people under the auspices of universal basic income and then could be spent everywhere because MasterCard, Visa, PayPal, whoever, eBay, you know, go down the list of them was involved. That's what I think was behind that. So anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, this, this thousand dollars, these thousand dollar checks that are going to be going out month after month, uh, like I said, we'll be keeping an eye on that. You know, I know somebody else who's going to be keeping an eye on that and that is sovereign tech sponsor, free talk live. I want you okay to no, this is, I'm not uncle Sam. I want you to go to freetalklive.com. I want you to check out a show that even though COVID-19 is rolling, has not stopped seven nights a week, three hours a night, 365 uh, days a year. They are, they are just going, even though this year, this year's 366 days, right? Yeah. Just amazing. Uh, (laughs) I mean, how this show just keeps on going. Uh, And it's been going on for well over a decade. You are in for a great time. It is an open phone show, uh, but also an educational time, Uh, you know, and certainly sometimes it's, uh, well, I, I don't know. I think even when things get kind of dark and gloomy or somebody starts yelling or whatever else on there, that that's a good time too. But <laughs> regardless, uh, you know, the number 26 talk show in the communist United, I'm sorry, in the United States. Uh, and I mean, it's really worth a listen. The only libertarian show on the national airwaves on the national, should I say nationalized airwaves now? Uh, well on the national airwaves, uh, check it out. Freetalklive.com. And I thank them very much. I'm certainly not insulting them. Uh, thank I thank them very much for sponsoring sovereign tech. I got my start in a very real way on that show. Actually, they, they, they coincided my start, uh, of my two year tenure actually on free talk live began the same week that uh, Sovereign Tech first came out back in 2012. So anyway, I, yeah, just always been a fan of the show. Certainly one of the things that actually got me to move to uh, to New Hampshire or, you know, inspired, helped inspire that move. Um, all right, let's get into our story of the week. I think we've had enough of all that horseshit. And this is one that I said we would revisit in episode 366. And in episode 366, it turned into a conversation around, uh, well, it started with a tweet that Richard Dawkins made about eugenics and that being a, uh, that it would be quote unquote good. And I put that in quotes because what good meant for him, he claims is something a little different than what people read it as uh, good for humanity. Now, of course, I instantly brought up that, you know, cause he says it's like, well, it's good for the cows. It's good for whatever, blah, 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 blah. And of course I instantly retorted to that with, well, that's saying you're saying it's good for the roses or good for the cows or good for, you know, whatever based around how they, you know, become ultimately helpful for a human being, not necessarily 
helpful, say for the cow, for the cow itself, right? For the cow's own self. And anyway, that, that whole thing blew up. We had a big conversation about it in episode 366. So please go to that if you want to hear more about that. But the thing that I, I teased was the story. And I'm particularly here reading from Vox. And again, this is from about a year ago, almost to the day uh, by Seagal Samuel. And it was from April 12th, 2019. So this is before COVID-19. Okay. And it's, or well, before it became like a big deal here, uh, scientists added human brain genes to monkeys. Yes. It's as scary as it sounds. Some are calling the Chinese experiment quote, an ethical nightmare end quote. Now I said in the last episode that I wanted to revisit this subject. And so here we are, we are revisiting, making good on my word. Uh, so let's read a little bit of the story and then I want to talk about it and really what, it, how it fits in with things going on today and, and maybe some more generalist aspects as well. I mean, for fuck's sake, folks, we can't talk about COVID-19 all the time, nor would I want to. Life goes on. Not that I'm going to talk about Star Trek Picard on this show. Holy fuck. man! <laughs> Some, well, somebody put that dumpster fire out. Holy hell. Ooh. <laughs> okay. Um, Scientists in China have created a new kind of monkey. It's got a human brain gene, and that just might make its intelligence a little bit more like ours. That, in turn, makes its fate and its very existence very ethically fraught. In a study published last month in Beijing's National Science Review Journal, researchers took human copies of the MCPH1 gene, which is believed to play an important role in our brain development, and introduced it into monkey embryos by means of a virus that carried the gene. Of the 11 transgenic macaque monkeys they generated, six died. The five survivors went through a series of tests, including MRI, brain scans, and memory tests. It turned out that they didn't have bigger brains than a control group of macaques, but they did perform better on short-term memory tasks. Their brains also developed over a longer period of time, which is typical of human brains. So Stallion breaking in for a second on this story. Six of the macaque, there was 11 of them. Six of them died, arguably from the process. Okay because of the addition five lived on and there was some improvement in, they performed better on short-term memory tests, but that's an important thing to, to, to keep in mind here is that some of them died because, you know, and again, arguably it's because of this process. Although reading on, although the sample size is very small, the scientists excitedly described the study as quote, the first attempt to experimentally, uh, interrogate the ge genetic basis of human brain origin using a transgenic monkey model, end quote. In other words, part of the point of the study was to help tackle a question about evolution. How did we humans develop our unique brand of intelligence, which has allowed us to innovate in ways other primates can't? The Chinese researchers suspect the MCPH1 gene is part of the answer, but they're not stopping there. One of them, Bing Su, a geneticist of the uh, Cumming Institute of Zoology, told MIT Technology Review that he's already testing other genes involved in brain evolution. Quote, one that he has his eye on is SRGAP2C, a DNA variant that arose about 2 million years ago, just when, oh boy, I can't pronounce that, Australopithecus, I think I got that, uh, was that, that sounds like, 
sorry, all I could think of was Austrian economist. Anyway, uh, was seeding the African savanna to early humans. That gene has been dubbed the humanity switch and the missing genetic link for its likely role in the emergence of human intelligence. Uh, Sue says he's been adding it to monkeys, but that it's too soon to say what the results are. Sue has also had his eye on another human gene, Fox P2, which is believed to have graced us with our language abilities, right? The broker divide, Stanley breaking in on that. Reading on, uh, pondering the possibility of adding that gene to monkeys, Sue told Nature in 2016, quote, I don't think the monkey will all of a sudden start speaking, but will have some behavioral change, end quote. He would not be breaking any laws. In the U.S., uh, scientists have created human-animal hybrids in an attempt to grow human organs for medical transplants, for example, by injecting human cells into a pig embryo and a sheep embryo, but such studies are not eligible for public funding. Uh, Sue's prediction that his tinkering would cause behavioral change uh raises a slippery slope concern. If we deem it acceptable to make an animal slightly more human-like, we may end up normalizing that process and find ourselves generating animals that resemble humans to even greater degrees. Uh, if you make primates smarter and more human-like, you're not doing them any favors, not least if you're going to then keep them locked up in a lab. In the words of University of Colorado bioethicist Jacqueline Glover, quote, to humanize them is to cause harm. Where would they live and what would they do? Do not create a being that can't have a meaningful life in any context, end quote. In a 2010 paper titled, quote, The Ethics of Using Transgenic Non-Human Primates to Study What Makes Us Human, end quote, Glover and her co-authors wrote that it's unethical to add human brain genes to apes, such as chimpanzees. Sue told MIT Tech Review uh, he agrees that's out of bounds given how similar apes are to humans. After all, chimps and humans share a recent common ancestor and 98% of uh, DNA. But monkeys aren't apes. The last time uh, they shared an ancestor with us was 25 million years ago, which Sue thinks changes the ethical calculus. Quote, although their genome is close to ours, there are also tens of millions of differences, end quote, he said, adding that for monkeys to become meaningfully unmonkey-like would be, quote, impossible by introducing only a few human genes, end quote. Stanley breaking in on that, like, then doesn't that kind of defeat the whole purpose here? <laughs> if it's not going to do anything meaningful, then why fucking do it? Also, I, I mean, this is, no pun intended, this really feels like splitting hairs. Oh, but, you know, they're, macaques, they're, they're, they're not related that much to, to humans. Oh, I'd never do it to an ape, but I'll do it to a macaque. Does this sit right with everybody? Is that, I mean, are, are you, are you willing to, to claim that, 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 that what's Bing Su or yourself? are that intelligent to be able to claim that, well, okay. Yeah. I don't think they're at the same level as, uh, as humans, you know? Uh, yeah. They only share about 97% of, of human DNA, not 98. So, you know, they just, they didn't make the cut, right? It's kind of like the, the whole cute, uh, animal argument, right. You know, where, okay, we don't kill seals because they can do cute things with the, you know, with their flippers or whatever. Uh, but you know, we see a cow walk by, shut up your fucking baseball glove, get in the truck. I mean, what the hell? I'm not willing to play that mind game or, you know, roll some of those dice or do that math. Let's read a little bit more of the story here. That kind of justification is abhorrent to Barbara J. King, author of How Animals Grieve and an emerita professor of anthropology at the College of William and Mary. In an email, she called Sue's experiment, quote, an ethical nightmare, end quote, writing, quote, more of the genetically altered monkeys, six 
died than lived. So right off the bat, we see that the procedure is often lethal. Again, above 50%. Uh, standing breaking in. Regarding the five survivors, what kind of lives will they have going forward, altered as they are, and confined to an experimental laboratory? End quote. King also suggested a cost-benefit analysis of Sue's study uh, does not shake out in his favor. Quote, in the wild, macaques live in uh, matrilines, uh, centered around groups of related females with, with close social ties. They explore their world with intelligence and curiosity. What right do we have to subject these primates to grotesque procedures of this sort? End quote, she wrote. Quote, the costs are terribly high and the benefits to humanity approach zero. There's growing recognition that animal models simply don't work well to study complex human processes, end quote. Stallion breaking in, and, and you know, this is, this is the part that, that made, and, and not, not, I mean, the instant I read the headline, and I, and I said this in the last episode of Sovereign Tech, the instant I read the headline, I was like, holy shit, the Chinese government basically just wants to create a bunch of macaque soldiers or something. You know, it's like the, it's like the dolphin experiments the Soviets were doing. Uh, I hope Brian Soviet didn't hear that anyway. Uh, and you know, when, when I hear that, because then, I mean, then you just, you come down to this and it's like, wait a minute, there's no real benefit to this, you know, on, on, on the human level. And because the macaques aren't growing up in their natural environment, like you're not even seeing, you know, I mentioned this also in the last episode, like the, the concept of, uh, like David Brin's science fiction series called uplift great books, big fan. Uh, in fact, I think he just recently revamped uh, Sundiver, uh, which is the first book in that series. And in, you know, in that, like they're, they're trying to raise up all different species to bring them to a point of, you know, sapience. In fact, he, you know, those books are what actually, you know, when I was frankly a teenager, uh, I use it now often on the show. Well, ever since the show started, but it's the, those are the books that actually inspired me to, instead of, you know, to differentiate between sentience and sapience, right. And to talk about say dolphins or, um, you know, or elephants or go down the list of, of varying species that we've discussed on the show, uh, that they have sapience, not just sentience. You know, they're not just acting on instinct. If they're, if they're sapient, they can act outside of instinct. Right. But bottom line, even if you were trying to do that, you would actually want to do that you know, and have them like in their own environment so that either ultimately what I'm saying is without having to go down all those roads. Okay. And to cut time, ultimately what I'm saying is, is that this doesn't help humanity in understanding itself. And it sure as fuck doesn't help the macaques if they wanted to somehow make that argument. Right. And so it does feel like that there's something that the Chinese government, and I'm very particular in using the phrase or the term Chinese government. Okay. Uh, that they, they have some ulterior motive here and, and it, it doesn't, even if it's something that ultimately has to do with helping humanity in some way, um, they're obviously not being open or honest about it. And so ultimately I consider that nefarious. Now it's funny because, and this is one of the main points I want to bring up here. Okay. And I mean, this is, I, I guess at this stage, I mean, it had a little more meaning with COVID-19 when I was talking about it in the last episode, but bringing it up here, and again, I wanted, cause I did say, I want to talk about this even in a more generalist view. Um, there are, and I know this is even going on with trying to find, uh, resolutions to, you know, to the spread of COVID-19. They're, you know, scientists in this story, they can talk right and left about how what they think that what China is doing is completely unethical. 
Okay. And I think there's an easy case to be made for why this is unethical. And in fact, um, real quick, I mean, something we've talked about on recent uh, Zomi One Underground Q&As, which if you want to get access to those, go to zomiaone.com, look on the right-hand side, right-hand side, you can sign up for as little as $2 a month and you get access to thousands of hours of content, new content every week that you only get that way uh, as it stands. And sometimes I release them publicly. And in, we, we've recently been talking about, uh, like I got a question in about the ethics of keeping pets and, you know, pet keeping, as I talked about in that show is a, is a very new phenomena. Okay. As far as it like being an industry, like it is now to where you can go to your grocery store and buy food, like made specifically for your pets and all this stuff. A lot of this came out ironically around the same time of a lot of the, say the food industries revolutions, like in all this was basically like in the seventies. Okay. Like pet keeping was not commonplace. And there are plenty of people who think that it's actually, it, you know, eventually it'll fall out of vogue. Okay. But you know, one of the arguments around the ethics of keeping pets is that, look, we know rats, right? Even something, you know, the lowly life form of the rat, you know, rats laugh. Rats have a, a based on, on research, rats have an understanding of, you know, preservation, not just of self-preservation, but also preservation of other members of their species. Uh, for example, when they're drowning, they want to rescue themselves. And if they can, if they ever see in the future, another rat drowning, they will try to rescue the rat. So clearly they remember what they had gone through with the drowning. They recognize what drowning is and they take action on it. And this is where I, I bring this up. Okay. To, to say that like this idea that somehow, you know, you're like to, to split hairs with, well, you know, yeah. Okay, fine. We won't experiment on apes. We won't inject uh, uh you know, human brain genes on in apes, but you know, we don't have any problem doing it with macaques because while well, they're just lower on the, totem, on the totem pole. But I would argue that, I mean, if rats show so many things like empathy, uh, a sense of humor, <laughs> I mean, literally uh, a, a sense of humor uh, or, you know, the, the, the concept of even remembering uh, a, a, a death uh, or, a, you know, a mortal scenario and they go to rescue another rat. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think questions got to get raised here and it becomes a very tough scenario to say, OK, well, what life is it OK to experiment on? Maybe none. Other than those that can consciously choose to be experimented upon. And I don't know that the rats are doing that. I don't know if the macaques are doing that. In fact, I dare say they're not because they're clearly getting just taken away from their homes. Now, admittedly, uh, the research being done, like the premise that they're running off of, that these varying brain genes have something to do with, uh, you know, certain attitudes and capabilities of a human being. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily off base, right? Because, I mean, this gets started with certain theories, but one that I'm, I'm actually somewhat of a proponent of is the concept of the explorer gene. Okay. That there are humans that have the seven R gene, uh, as it's known that lends them to certain proclivities. And I mean, I've talked about it many times on the show and that's a whole other conversation. Of course, I base all ethics, you know, from a human standpoint on biological functions, Okay. So 
I mean, what's getting discussed here in the abstract is not uninteresting. Okay. And it might not even be inaccurate. Of course, how they're going about it with the macaques, that's a whole other story. Now, something, and, and this is the initial point that I was going to get into, or not the initial point, but this is a point I was going to get into a minute ago before you know, we went on a little, uh, little tributary of thought. Before you think that somehow, oh, all these scientists in the, in the United States are somehow, you know, oh, they're far more ethical. They would not agree with what, uh, you know, with what the Chinese scientists are doing with these macaques and they would never do that. Oh, it's so terrible, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, well, I mean, they couldn't if they wanted to, because our laws just don't allow for it in the United States. Well, do you know what they do? Do you know what a lot of scientists in the United States do? They go to China to perform the experiments that they want to perform. The laws don't stop shit. And their ethics get checked at the border, I guess. Just like all of ours, <laughs> it seems, or at least certainly our dignity. <laughs> but, I mean, this... I hope nobody walks away from this story thinking, oh, the evil Chinese or something like that. Oh, give me a break. There's scientists from every country all around the world that are probably salivating at the fact that this kind of thing is, is getting done. Um, and it speaks to, you know, it, it's funny because with COVID-19, um, and we mentioned this in the last episode, I mean, President Trump came out and said, yeah, we're going to bypass every law that we need to. Uh, to get to a quicker resolution um, for, you know, the COVID-19 situation. And, you know, I mean, the thing is, is that he didn't need to say that because, and I mean, they discuss it briefly a little bit in this story from Vox, even about what I had just said that, look, scientists will travel from everywhere and they'll go to where the laws allow them to uh, do the experiments that they want to do. Okay. He, there, there was there was no need for him to say that. I mean, I guess maybe it made it a little more expedient, right? Because then they just, they wouldn't have to ask the scientists in said country or send scientists to a certain country to engage in whatever experimentation that they needed to. But they do it anyway. And I mean, it just shows more of the sham that laws overall are, of course, because again, people will just go where the law does, where that specific law doesn't exist and they will do it anyway. And I guarantee you, whatever American company wants to, or whatever company anywhere, any country wants to make a buck off of the research done in whatever country, anywhere, they will do it. They'll take it and they don't give a rat's ass and they should give a rat's ass because again, the rat, hmm, smart little creature, they don't give a rat's ass about where the, where the information came from. There was a time I think where, where people cared, where, where ethics were, were a thing. Um, you know, I mean, I could, boy, we could really go on a, on a real side train of thought here or a real sidetrack because, and, and I've brought this point up many times, but I know, I think it's also true for other, uh, other industries and other fields. I think that's the word I want to use with computer science. You used to have to take courses. Okay. You used to have to take courses that, well, courses in the humanities. Okay. You used to have to take philosophy courses for, to get, you understand. It wasn't just something that like, Oh, everybody has to take a philosophy course. I wish. No, <laughs> it's, it's not that. Okay. They wanted you to take courses in philosophy in the humanities 
because they wanted you to have a ethical or at the very least a moral. And I think those are two different things, but a more, some kind of foundation when you go into computer programming and you go into computer science and so on. Okay. That way, whatever you are doing, whatever you are programming, whatever you are developing, you are supposed to be thinking about the overall well-being of the human condition. Okay. That was the idea. I don't think that's been done in decades now, but it used to be a thing. It used to be a requirement just like with doctors. Uh, as I understand it, you know, it used to be a requirement to take the Hippocratic oath. It is no longer. Um, I, I question, especially with, you know, lazy fuckers today. I, I question how many different fields and industries like even bother to have ethical discourse around what they're doing. I think that's, that's a, a lost art. And I say that without irony or without, a, and it's not meant to be a pun. I mean, because again, this is part of like the liberal arts. This is part of what was, you know, a, a more traditional education as it's been set up or, you know, passed down through time, but that's gone. And to bring this full circle, to relate to, again, what's going on now with COVID-19, I think there's a lot of people, and oh, do I understand where you're coming from. There are a lot of people who really wish, you know, could we just get the politicians out of the way and just finally let scientists run the show? I hear you. Okay. Now, I don't want anybody having power over, and that's a very specific type of power. Not all types of power are bad. I don't want people to have power over, okay, authority of the gun, etc. Uh, monopoly, you know, mon monopoly use of force. I mean, there's a lot of different terms we could use for it. I don't, I don't even want scientists to have that kind of power, right? Would I like scientists to be listened to at least a little bit more, perhaps a lot more? Sure. In a perfect world or even in a not so perfect world, but, but big, butt. look at that booty, big, butt. I would like it if those scientists actually had a, if they did have a foundation in ethics. And when I read stories like this, I don't think they're paying attention to their own research or if they are, if they are paying attention to their own research, um, they're not caring. They have a lack of compa compassion and empathy, which is, I would say a big part of what makes us human. It's a big part of what makes us alive not just human, because again, rats have empathy, right? No, it's what makes us alive. Might be more to the idea of being dead inside than we, than we realize. And so I'm not ready to turn things over to, you know, and, and this is no disrespect to scientists in the abstract, but like to a lot of people today, um, I don't know that they have, I don't know that they have the, the, the ethical fortitude to properly deal with what everyone is going through right now, because they're willing to do some pretty ugly shit. And don't just say it's the Chinese. No, 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 no. Because there's plenty of scientists from all over the world that are going there to do this very same thing. So anyway, we'll be right back with some more sovereign tech. We've got a little more COVID-19 news to get into, and then maybe eventually we'll, we'll just, it'll turn into more of an afterthought. We'll see, but, uh, but let, let, we'll get into it. I'll be right back with more.
Hey, if you have a project that needs reliable cryptocurrency data, check out blocktap.io. Blocktap.io is a universal cryptocurrency API. You can get historical prices for Bitcoin and other digital assets that you can use to build charts and do market analysis. Blockchain data is also indexed, so you can get transaction statistics, address balances, and more for Bitcoin and other networks. Blocktap.io is free for personal use, and you don't even need to create an account to access the API. To get started, try some of the example queries on the homepage at blocktap.io. Again, that's B-L-O-C-K-T-A-P.io, blocktap.io, and we thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Woo, let's get back to the show. And we are back with some more Sovereign Tech. Of course, Brian Sovereign here with you, not Brian Soviet, even though I'm sure he would fit into this country much better now. Uh, but <laughs> Regardless, i uh, got a couple of stories to get into here that really both have to do with the same thing. And I mean, the, the short and not so sweet of it is that COVID-19 is being used to raise the old standard of not having standards when it comes to encryption. Basically saying we cannot have data being encrypted because we've got to track this motherfucker. And like, uh, you know, in episode 366, when we were talking about basically the the call to Caesar argument, that being you give Caesar emergency powers to handle the barbarians at the gate, and then supposedly Caesar will give those powers back. Yeah, fucking right. That's what this is basically boiled down to. What it's come down to is that like all the, all the old canards of, you know, they were bad ideas when they were getting, uh, you know, bantied about for no real reason. Last time, what did they use? What did they say? It was terrorists. Okay. Uh, now they're going to use a virus. I mean, I guess, you know, it does make me kind of wonder. I want to, I want to get into these stories a little bit so you know what they're about, but just to, to speak on the abstract of it all, it does kind of make me wonder. I mean, did, did they think, you know, there, there's powers certainly that varying governments around the world want. And again, it's not just the U S um, you know, they, they'd love to get rid of encryption, even though aspects of governments say, even like the FBI and the NSA uh, were already crying uh, just a few minutes, a few months ago saying, Hey, Hey guys, 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 uh, you know, saying to senators and everything, uh, look, d- whoa, don't, don't ban encryption. Don't ask for these back doors. Cause you're going to fuck us. Because they know, right, that encryption's actually a useful thing, and it's something that's necessary for. I mean, if I I'll, look, if it secures the FBI and the NSA, it should secure the fucking individual and should be available to the individual, right? So, you know, any even though it's a bad idea, and 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 even elements of the government itself will say that it's a bad idea. I mean, again, all of these old canards that they've been trying to pass for however many years or decades or whatever, they're all coming back because now we got a new boogeyman. And like I said, I mean, part of me kind of wonders is that are they, you know, again, it's multiple forces taking advantage of the situation. It is not just the government, you know, there, again, like I said, there's no puppeteer on high pulling some strings here. This isn't some Alex Jones, new or new world order nonsense or any, you know, horseshit like that. Okay. This, there are a lot of different interest groups who are taking an interest 
and the emergency powers and emergency actions that this is seemingly justifying to the populace. Though I, I, I do wonder about that. I think people are getting sick of this pretty quick. Uh, no pun intended on that. And I don't mean sick of COVID-19 as in there's, they got the virus. I mean, sick of what it's causing overall. Okay. And you know, so, so really again, every old canard that you can imagine is, is getting put out there right now. Um, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I'm actually amazed that, and maybe he just knows maybe slap nuts and chief would know that it would just sound too stupid to say, this is why I need more funding for my wall so that, you know, we, we keep people out. I mean, of course <laughs> there's no wall high enough that could stop a virus. That's ridiculous. And actually Ellen shared a, a great Ted talk with me. Um, if I think of it, I'll put the link in the show notes um, that I just watched recently. And even in that someone who is a specialist in, you know, pandemics and, and, you know, and disease virus uh, spread, you know, spreading of viruses and disease and all this, she basically came right out and said like, look, you can't, you can't close borders. It's impossible. I mean, she's going down the list of all these things that you can't really do. All you can really do. There's no enforcement to be done. All you can do is prop up the, you know, uh, medical care, right? All you can do is prop up the medical system. That's the only way you can really solve this. And of course, inspire people to wash their hands. I mean, and this is from somebody who's knee deep in government, knee deep in the situation, not some conspiracy theorist by any stretch of the imagination. I don't necessarily use that as a derogatory term. Okay. Sometimes I do, but in this case, I'm not, uh, I mean, it's, she's nothing like that. She, you know, died in the wool and she's telling you, no, the only solution is to bolster the medical system bolster the healthcare system. There is like closing off shit, you know, closing borders and doing all this other crap. These, this isolationist nonsense. It's not going to do anything for this. And I think she's right, but you better believe that, <laughs> that businesses and politicians are jumping on board, uh, you know, to, to take advantage of, of, uh, you know, the, the fear, uh, whether real or trumped up pun intended there. So anyway, let's read this from a uh, Heretz, uh, of course, is kind of the New York Times of Israel. Uh, Attorney General approves CyberTech to track coronavirus patients. And this is why I say this uh, doesn't necessarily relate to only the U.S. Um, Shin Bet says it won't track people in quarantine, but doesn't mention those who came in contact with known coronavirus patients. Uh, reading a little bit of the story here, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, announced Saturday that Israel seeks to use technological means usually used for counterterror to combat the spread of the novel coronavirus as the country saw uh, diagnosed cases spike by 50 in one day. Now, understand this story is from about a week ago, March 15th, uh, 2020. And uh, the announcement was made as part of a new set of directives issued by the government that will effectively see a, uh, the country grind to a halt while it attempts to combat the coronavirus outbreak. Shortly after the announcement, Attorney General uh, Evachai Mendelbit, I probably, look, I'm even Jewish and I probably said that wrong. Anyway, approved the use of cyber measures to track patients' phones. The Justice Ministry, uh, responding to a Herod's qu uh, query, said the directive was legal under the regulations that were put in place to fight the virus. So these regulations were put in place because of COVID-19 and basically they are allowed to just completely control patients' phones that have gone, uh, you know, that, that have gone to, to get treatment or tested or whatever uh, on this. And it, well, it did say patients. I don't think that it actually said whether or not they were people that actually had coronavirus, but even if they just went to get tested. Well, anyway, let me, let me keep reading here. Um, 
A representative told Heritz that the uh, ministry's legal opinion would be, quote, forwarded to the Shin Bet Security Service and brought before the government on Sunday. And, quote, the prime minister called COVID-19 an invisible enemy and said, quote, all means would be used to fight the spread of the coronavirus, including technological means, digital means and other means that until today I have refrained from using among the civilian population, end quote. As I have often said, any and all data eventually will be used against you. We've said that on Sovereign Tech many times. You think, oh, this is, I mean, because what do you think that a lot of this tracking technology that the Israeli government is basically allowed for, allowing for, uh, or allowing to be used on patients, just civilians, right? What do you think that was originally made for? I'll give you a couple guesses, and they're probably both right. Enemies of the state, yeah. Terrorists, yeah. Well, there you go. Those are a good couple to start off with. And that's exactly what they were designed for. And you, again, this is, this is happening. I guarantee you, this is not just happening in Israel. You kind of like we talked about in the last episode where, okay, in China, oh, in China, they're using drones. We'd never use drones on Americans in America. Oh no, no, no. Oh shit. Well, but then God damn it. Then California says, Hey, we're going to use drones. <laughs> of course they did. Oh, fucking a, um, anyway, <laughs> So it's a matter of time. If it's not already being done, maybe they're just being quiet about it and Israel's a little more open about it, right? Um, but people, you know, these technologies were uh, the everyday person, the everyday civilian was probably like, oh yes, oh, I'm so glad that you developed this to be able to combat terrorism and enemies of the state and blah, blah, blah. And now, as we always warn on Sovereign Tech now, it's being pointed at you. And it wasn't if, it was when. It's never if, it's always when. Like I said, any data that you create can and eventually will, not if, eventually will be used against you. And they can claim all day long that this is a temporary measure. No. <laughs> no way. The barbarians are at the gates. Caesar's got to, I mean, you know, and, and once you get rid of those barbarians, well, Caesar's got to fucking stay in power because there might be more barbarians out there. And if there aren't, we'll create them. How about this one? Let's, uh, let's cross the pond, shall we? It's from the verge stories from uh, March 12th, 2020. So a little, a little earlier to that story. Uh, a sneaky attempt to end encryption is worming its way through Congress. The Earn It Act could give law enforcement officials the backdoor they have long wanted unless tech companies come together to stop it. Oh, right, because tech companies don't want that data. Uh, uh, reading, here we go. A thing about writing a newsletter about technology and democracy during a global pandemic is that technology and democracy are no longer really at the forefront of everyone's attention. That's good. Or, well, <laughs> they, uh, the relationship between big platforms and the nations they operate in remains vitally important for all sorts of reasons. And I've argued that the platforms have been unusually proactive in their efforts to promote high quality information sources. Still, these moves are a sideshow compared to the questions we're all now asking. How many people will get COVID-19? Blah, 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 blah. Anyway, let me get into the meat of it. Uh, we won't know the answers for weeks, but I'm starting to fear the worst. On Wednesday, the World Health Organization declared the COVID yeah, was, was officially a pandemic. Uh, this piece by Thomas Puyo argues persuasively that the United States is currently seeing exponential growth in the number of people contracting the disease, blah, 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 blah. You know, they keep going on to that. So let's, let's skip down. 
One risk of having the world pay attention to a single, all-consuming story is that less important but still urgent stories are missed along the way. One such unfolding story in our domain is the deep breath, eliminating abusive and rampant uh, neglect of interactive technologies. That's what earn it stands for. Can you believe that crap? Earn it act, which was the subject of a Senate hearing on Wednesday. Here's uh, here's what CNET said, quote, the earn it act was introduced by Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina and Senator Richard Blumenthal, Democrat of Connecticut. Oh, it's bipartisan. Oh, that's so wonderful. Woo. Jeez. Let me jerk off right here. Uh, along with Senator Josh Hawley, Republican of Missouri and Senator Dianne Feinstein. Uh, Democrat of California on March 5th. The premise of the bill is that technology companies have to earn Section 230 protections rather than being granted immunity by default, as the Communications Decency Act has provided for over two decades. For starters, it's not clear what are clear that the companies have to earn what are already protections provided under the First Amendment to publish and to allow their users to publish with very few legal restrictions. But if the Earn It Act were passed, tech companies could be held liable if their users posted illegal content. This would represent a significant and potentially devastating amendment to Section 230, a much misunderstood law that many consider a pillar of the Internet and the businesses that operate on top of it. When internet companies become liable for what their users post, those companies aggressively moderate speech. This was the chief outcome of FOSTA SESTA, the last bill Congress passed to amend Section 230. It was putatively written to eliminate sex trafficking and was passed into law after Facebook endorsed it. Oh, because... You know, I mean, Facebook doesn't have any political power. Oh, I guess they do. Reading on, I wrote about the aftermath in October. The law threatens any website owner with up to 10 years in prison for hosting even one instance of prostitution-related content. Woo, how about that? Let's read on. This is the, that, That's the very same thing that ended up, that basically had Craigslist uh, shut down all kinds of aspects of their site, as well as like Backdoor, I think. or There were varying sites that got shut down because of that, uh, because it was just too risky to run, to operate. Reading on. Uh, meanwhile, I mean, Craigslist didn't shut down. Like I said, aspects of it, though, got squeezed. Uh, meanwhile, evidence that the law reduced sex trafficking is suspiciously hard to come by. Why? Because as we've said throughout this entire episode of Sovereign Tech, laws don't work. They never work. They never have. They don't even have. It's not even a matter of, well, they have unintended consequences. They don't have remotely intended consequences. And I mean, everything's unintended consequences when it comes to laws because they just they don't do jack shit. So, and there is little reason to believe that the Earn It Act will be a greater boon to public life. Yet, for reasons, uh, for the reasons Issy Lepowski lays out today in a good piece in protocol, it may pass anyway. Once again, Congress has lined up some sympathetic witnesses who paint a picture that, because of their misfortune, whole swaths of the internet should be eliminated. It would do that by setting up a Byzantine checklist structure that would handcuff companies to a difficult-to-modify set of procedures. One item on that checklist could be eliminating end-to-end -end encryption in messaging apps, depriving the world of a secure communication tool at a time when authoritarian governments are surging around the world or and yeah well COVID-19 I mean every government every government's authoritarian right we know that we're anarchists here or well, at least I'm an anarchist are they getting more authoritarian with you know what they can take advantage of with COVID-19 with the COVID-19 situation you bet your ass so anyway, uh, the bill's backers have not said definitively that they will demand a backdoor for law enforcement and whoever else can find it as part of the Earn It Act. In fact, Blumenthal denies it, but nor have they written the bill to say they won't. And Graham, one of the bill's co-sponsors, left little doubt on where he stands. This is from Lindsey Graham. Quote, Facebook is talking about end-to-end -end encryption, which means uh, they go blind. 
Uh, we're not going to go blind and let this abuse go forward in the name of any other freedom. So basically Senator Lindsey Graham is blatantly saying, uh, Hey Jack, you know, <laughs> and then encryption on messaging apps, signal, telegram, whatever. No more, no longer. You're done. That's not happening because we need to know. We've got to be aware of this stuff. Otherwise, we will never stop this virus as if somehow humans could control the earth to that level in any way that they dreamed of anyway. Ridiculous. And the moral of the story. I mean, do I really have to like do a whole monologue? Do I have to sit down like Captain Kirk at the center of the bridge, have Spock and McCoy on each side of me? Boy, I wouldn't mind that, but, you know, have Spock and McCoy on each side of me and we all have a little conversation, uh, you know, about this. Do I really need to have that conversation with you? No, you should abundantly realize what's going on here. A very real problem that's scaring a lot of people, some of them for very good reasons because they're immunocompromised or, you know, they're advanced in years or whatever the fuck is going on. Okay. Or they, you know, I mean, I, I did a, I did kind of a, just an impromptu poll as it were in the sovereign tech telegram group. And I said, it's like, you know, who's, who's, whose jobs are being affected by this? Who's out of work? Uh, I mean, I was glad to hear that not everybody now granted, I mean, this, this is a tech show. So to some degree it has a tech audience. I know it has an audience that goes beyond that, but uh, you know, tech jobs can often work remotely and sometimes already do much like the work that I do myself. Okay. Uh, and so I was glad to hear that there's a lot of people that aren't, but some of them are just kind of like on bated breath saying, well, uh, maybe some people are, you know, getting, uh, you know, they're off for a couple of weeks and not sure if they're going to be able to come back to work. There's people who are, are have very real fears, okay? Whether it's because of a drummed up reaction, you know, uh, whether it's because of perceptions and people going crazy over things that they shouldn't be going crazy, what, whatever is going on, whatever the reality of perceptions are, the effects are unavoidable. And you have these people out here, you got, you know, fuckers in Washington and all around the world in every capital who are using this instead of trying to come up with actual solutions to try and help people, like, what did we say? Well, a real way to do this is, Hey, instead of bothering to pass law, you know, pass bills that are going to uh, restrict, you know, online services and companies, instead of wasting time with that, how about we pass some bills that, gee, how can we incentivize perhaps, I mean, look, actually, like I said, I'm an anarchist. I don't want any bills getting passed, but how about they do things, whatever that happens to be, maybe a lot of decriminalization that somehow would allow for more money to flow into uh, the medical sector. How about that? Wouldn't that be nice? It'd be great. Senator Graham. Piece of shit. Sorry. I shouldn't have said that. No, he deserved it. <laughs> wasting their time, but that's what they always do. So we don't need to go on a big diatribe, but I want you, I think I said this on a Q and a, but I'll say it here. It is just as important in the situation we are in right now. It is just as important to wash your hands, you know, protect your health, protect your body. It is just as important to do that as it is to protect your mind. I understand that there are people who again have very real fears around what's happening. I get that. Do not, do not let those fears trick you into handing over powers that you should have as the individual or aspects, freedoms that you have as an individual because of those fears. Don't do it. 
I haven't seen anything like this since probably before. And I know I got duped and that's how I know about protecting your mind. I got duped into joining the U S military. That was a mistake. I thought something needed to be done. Well, I looked in the absolute wrong direction. Don't look in the wrong direction with this one either. Oh, it's not terrorists this time. That doesn't mean it's not the same old, you know, same old song and dance as Aerosmith would say. So we'll wrap that one up here. Keep using encryption folks. In fact, the nice thing about open source is they can say whatever the, you know, these, I mean, ultimately they can claim whatever they want and say, oh, you can't use encrypted apps. Well, then the encrypted app will get developed kind of like how scientists will go to another country. Oh, ironically, uh, you know, developers for these apps, for these encrypted apps will end up just going to other countries where they can safely develop and, uh, or they'll do it in secret or whatever, and it'll be open source and available for everyone. So problem solved, no laws. So keep using it folks. Just make it, make it sexy. All right. Anyway, that's it for this episode of Sovereign Tech. Uh, More Sovereign Tech to come out actually this week. And uh, I will see more episodes of other things too. It's going to be a good time. So I will see all of you on the other side. Thank you for listening to Sovereign Tech. An Osiris One production. Now go out there and make some trouble. that easily, Brian Sovereign. Commander Brian Soviet will rise again. <laughs> <laughs>